As usual, uh, more material than time to cover. I think we've got 55 slides today. We'll see how far we can get. Uh, I'm going to introduce and then I'll pray. Of course, this is our core doctrine series for those who've been tracking along. Following the Elder Affirmation of Faith, this is week one of May, a five-week month, May the 1st. Uh, so we'll be looking at biblical theology this week on our theological affirmation titled Living God's Word by Meditation and Prayer. Uh, that's the title of the article. It's Article 11 in our Elder Affirmation of Faith, and that should say Biblical Theology instead of Historical. Uh, but we'll look at biblical foundations for what does this mean to have our life absorbed in the Word of God and in, in prayer and in communion with God. So let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would make of us the blessed person of Psalm 1, like the Lord Jesus who meditates on your law day and night, and make of us Hebrews 10 people who boldly and confidently access your throne through the new and living way, through the veil of the flesh of Jesus, that we would go into the throne room and live in your presence with our King, our Redeemer, until we see your lovely face. Lord, would you make us men and women, boys and girls of the word and of prayer, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our article 11 reads in, I think, three points. We believe that faith is awakened and sustained by God's Spirit through His Word and prayer. The good fight of faith is fought mainly by meditating on the Scriptures and praying that God would apply them to our souls. Point two, we believe that the promises of God recorded in the Scriptures are suited to save us from the deception of sin by displaying for us and holding out to us superior pleasures in the protection, provision, and presence of God. Therefore, reading, understanding, pondering, memorizing, and savoring the promises of all that God will be for us in Jesus are primary means of the Holy Spirit to break the power of sin's deceitful promises in our lives. Therefore, it's needful that we give ourselves to such meditation day and night. Uh, point three, there's actually point four. Point three, we believe that God has ordained to bless and use his people for his glory through the means of prayer offered in Jesus' name by faith. All prayer should seek ultimately that God's name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, that his will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. God's sovereignty over all things is not a hindrance to prayer, but rather a reason for hope that our prayers will succeed. And then finally, we believe that prayer is the indispensable handmaid of meditation. As we cry out to God for the inclination to turn from the world to the Word and for the spiritual ability to see the glory of God in His testimonies and for a soul-satisfying delight in the love of God and for strength in the inner man to do the will of God, by prayer, God sanctifies His people sends gospel laborers into the world and causes the word of God to spread and triumph over Satan and unbelief. Uh, a lot of words to emphasize the import of meditation on scripture and a life of prayer. 
uh, four things I would like for us to think about in the time we have today are faith is a gift. Uh, we have dealt with that previously in weeks on uh, the nature of saving faith and the doctrine of regeneration. Faith is a gift that is somehow awakened, sustained, and fueled for the fight. How does God do those works? I want to try to show from Scripture He does so through the Word and through prayer. Number two, the power and utility, the usefulness of God's Spirit-wielded promises. There's actual power for Sunday, May the 1st, 2022, that comes from God Himself by His Spirit through His promises. How does He do that? Through the Word and prayer. Third, the combo of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Our prayer, our praying does not change God's plan, but is the pathway through which He carries it out. So three, our praying in God's providence. And finally, four, God's kingdom being advanced. Um, if we've lost the fervor to pray for the Lord to raise up laborers for the harvest who would go tell the glorious gospel and see churches established, may God reignite that flame today because it is through meditation and prayer that God's kingdom advances in the world. Donald Alexander, uh, let's see. No, I'll save that quote for a minute. First, the gift of faith, awakened, sustained, and fighting. And the affirmation that says in point one that faith is awakened and sustained, and then the next line, the good fight of faith is fought mainly by meditating on the scriptures and praying that God would apply them to our souls. Now, I don't know if you believe that or if it's too early on a Sunday for you to think about that, but I wonder what you think about that. Faith birthed, faith created, faith awakened, faith continued, faith sustained. And living out the Christian life, the fight of faith is the way the New Testament describes that on multiple occasions, happens mainly by meditating on the Scriptures and praying that God would apply them to our souls. So, we could ask by application, though we're on week one, not week three, are you meditating on the Scriptures? And are you praying that God would apply them to your soul? Ephesians 2, concerning faith being awakened. You all know this great reality, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You didn't come up with your own faith. God gave it to you. Similarly, in 2 Timothy, the Lord's bondservant, must not be quarrelsome. Boy, if that one phrase were applied to today, how much would change? The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Where does repentance come from? The middle of this passage says on line four and five, 
God may grant them repentance. So we just saw in Ephesians, faith is a gift. We see here, repentance is a gift. It's something God grants. He awakens the twin gifts of faith and repentance, which He requires for all who come to Christ. In Acts 11, when the Jerusalem believers heard that God was saving the Gentiles, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Where did they get the repentance? God gave it to them. How did he give it to them? The proclamation of the gospel in this case through the lips of the apostle Peter. When he preached Jesus at Cornelius' house and the people believed and were saved. In Acts 16, how was Lydia saved? How was her faith awakened? A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Listening to what? Listening to Paul preach the gospel. What happened? The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The biblical presentation of the gospel is the avenue through which God awakens faith. One more on faith being awakened, then we'll look at sustained and fighting under point one. Uh, Sorry, that's the same verse. All right, let's think about faith being sustained. If it's birthed by God, Ephesians 2 is a gift, how is it continued? How How do we continue to walk by faith? Romans 10, this I don't believe is only initial saving faith, but also persevering, sustaining faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or maybe a very wooden literal translation, the testimony concerning Christ. Where do you hear that testimony? In the scriptures. So if you have the gift of faith, Ephesians 2 and so forth, Romans 12 speaks of that. In verse 3, if you have the gift, how is, it, how is this faith sustained? How is it fed? How is it cultivated? How does it mature? How does it grow? The continual hearing of the testimony concerning Christ. That is, the Scriptures, which Jesus said all bear witness to Him. That's how your faith is fed. That's how it's sustained through the Word of Christ. The psalmist prayed. I, my the brother I quote all the time who invested in me, Clyde, (laughs) prayed this verse every day. And he prayed it over the lives of countless dozens of people every day. Establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. That's how your faith is sustained. Walking in the word, literally trudging step after step after step, as it were, in God's word. The psalmist prayed, teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. This is the pure heart of Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's an undivided heart or here a united, a wholeheartedness that is walking in the truth. That's how our faith, our faith is sustained. And the reason, uh, you know, Biblical access has never been higher. Biblical illiteracy may also never have been higher. We must walk in the truth of Scripture. United heart to fear God's name. Let's talk about the fight of faith here in in number one because the affirmation said uh, something like, 
the fight of faith happens primarily through meditation on Scripture and a life of prayer. So, for those who believe, what a great prayer. This, this boy's father who Jesus soon healed, I think in the next verse in Mark 9, cried out, I do believe. Help. I think those four letters are, are one of the greatest prayers we can ever pray. Pray it all the time. Help. Help. Help my unbelief. Do not let me live wavering around in unbelief. Don't let me be like chaff that's just tossed all over the place. Establish my footsteps in your word. That's how we fight the fight of faith. You all know Psalm 119. This is the believer's prayer. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Constant. It's prayer and the word. It's, it's, you don't have a prayer time and a devotion time. You have a prayer-filled devotion time. It's prayer-saturated time in the Word and Word-saturated time in prayer. That's what meditation is. So the Eastern religions would talk about meditation as emptying your mind, nirvana, think about nothing. Christian meditation is exactly the opposite. It's filling your mind with the truth of Scripture. And as we meditate on the wonderful things of God's law, we are praying, God, open my eyes to see. I can't see it on my own. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. That's a prayer. But what's it a prayer for? To have a life filled up with the Word of God, the testimony of God. Ephesians 1, Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe and he goes on to quantify what that power is in the next phrase the power God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead well we we pray that that we would be able to embrace these things and fight the fight of faith through a word saturated prayer soaked walk with God. Paul says to Thessalonians for himself, finally, brethren, pray for us. The word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And that we'll be res- we will be rescued from this, from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. Pray for the advance of the word into the lives of others. If the word has advanced in your life, how did, how did God's word advance in you? Somebody prayed, a bunch of somebodies. You are a monument of answered prayer if you believe in Christ. A lot of old grandmas and faithful church people and Sunday school teachers and moms and aunties and all kinds of people prayed for you. And Paul's telling the Thessalonians, you need to pray for other people because the mighty purposes of God advance in the world on the pathway of believing prayer. Again to the Thessalonians, to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we pray for you? So that you would keep walking in your calling, that you'd be counted worthy of the call God put on your life. That's the call to Christ. And that all your desires for good, good work, faith-filled work 
will happen with the power of God. Why? So that Jesus will be glorified. This only happens as the result of answered prayer. So, so first, faith is awakened, sustained, and fights through meditation and prayer. Second, I want us to think about this is so, so, so essential to living the Christian life. The power and utility, usefulness of God's spirit-wielded promises. Look at the affirmation again at point two. We believe that the promises of God recorded in the scriptures and in that first pa- paragraph do something for us. They show the mirage of sin and they show the superior pleasure of God. That's what promises do, divine promises. And then in the second paragraph, the promises of all that God will be for us in Jesus, it goes on to say, are the main, the primary, numero uno, means of breaking the power of sin's deceitful promises. Therefore, we should meditate on God's word day and night, as Psalm 1 says. So our point is, the power of God's promises and the usefulness of God's promises. Look at, there's so many passages on this. I was, uh, it was hard for me to limit. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of them. Second Peter one, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine promises has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, I believe that's the precious and magnificent promises that are earlier described. For by these, the knowledge of God, sorry, my cursor's on my screen, not yours. Through the true knowledge of him, where am I at? There it is. For by these, He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. How will you not live in the lust of the world? The precious and magnificent promises of God that give you a true knowledge of his glory and excellence and lead to a life of real godliness. That's that's the way. Hebrews 10 How did people take joy when their houses got destroyed because they identified themselves with believers who were imprisoned? They knew that they had for themselves a better possession and a lasting one. The promise of an eternal age with Christ, unceasing joy, allowed people to joyfully accept the seizure of their property is so counterintuitive to a worldly-minded person. Only the promises of God could create such a delight in a soul. Look at this. This, I mean, I'll never get over this passage. It makes me want to go back and re-preach Hebrews all over again. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for 
he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. How do you do this? How do you choose? This isn't martyr complex, this is Christianity. How do you choose ill treatment over pleasures of sin? How do you do that? You have to look at the benefit of Christ. Even his reproach is bigger than the whole pyramid treasury storehouses of Egypt because there's a reward. What reward? The promises of the gospel. How do you, how do you live such a life? You have to look at somebody. You have to see somebody. And if you see Christ in Scripture by faith and you pray for his fullness in your soul, walk with people who do the same, then the world's pleasures start to look small and God's promises start to look big. This is another amazing one in Hebrews. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, that's literally today's sermon in a sentence. (laughs) So, let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For, here's the promise, we do not have a lasting city here. Here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. How do you go bear the reproach of Jesus with joy? You have to see him who suffered and you have to believe that there are promises on the other side of this life that make everything in this world look tiny in comparison. Uh, Paul said, if you'll meditate on scripture prayerfully, you'll understand, uh, you'll understand what he wrote. (laughs) By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. If you go read in the Ephesians 3 context, he's about to go on to talk about the unfathomable riches of Christ. And how do you discern that? Prayer-filled meditation on Scripture makes Christ look unfathomably glorious to a believing soul, more so than, than anything the world could offer. Paul says, consider, that's meditate, that's prayerfully Work hard. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Who will give it? The Lord will give it. (laughs) How will he do it? As you consider deeply, as you ponder carefully, ruminate, cogitate, meditate, chew the cud, prayerfully, let it roll around in your mind over and over and over. It's like a stump in the middle of the field. You just plow around it, plow around it, plow around it, and 10 years later, the stump gets loose, and ah, it makes sense now. It's not overnight. You, Spurgeon says, you rake the leaves over a verse, you get dirt. You get out a pickaxe and go deep, you get gold under every verse. Therefore, the psalmist. What's the syllogism? What's the logic of this verse? For I've treasured your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. We can all see the positive. What's the negative? Let's read it backwards. I have not, I have not treasured your word in my heart because I do not care if I sin against you. That would be the equal opposite. It's the storing up. It's the meditating. 
It's putting in the cupboard of your soul the Word of God because you have a bigger motive. You don't want to live in sin. You want the pleasure of pleasing God. That's bigger to you than anything the world has to offer. This is what a regenerate soul sounds like. And as you delight yourself in Him, here's a promise. He gives you the desires of your heart, which many, many, many have paraphrased. If you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you Himself. He becomes the desire of your soul. Malachi. He's the desire of the nations. Okay? So, uh, faith is a gift, and you, and you fight the fight of faith by prayer and meditation. Knowing God's promises, there's power and usefulness, trying to overcome the inferior pleasures of this world. But what's the mixture of uh, our responsibility and God's sovereignty? Look at point three. It says, God has ordained through prayer, the yellow parts, in his sovereignty, which is not a hindrance to prayer. Some, some say if God is sovereign, why pray? Biblical literacy says because God is sovereign, therefore pray. That's exactly the way Jesus argued in Matthew 6 in the model prayer. Think about this. You all can quote this passage. When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Logically, the next thing that we would expect Jesus to say is, therefore, don't worry about praying. A lot of other people use a lot of words because they think words make God listen more. Nope. God already knows what you need before you even ask. So you don't need to ask. It's not what he says. Because God knows what you need before you ask, therefore pray. Pray then in this way. So God-centered. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because God already knows. But he's purposed in his sovereignty to cause his great purposes to advance in the world on the pathway of believing prayer. So if, if I don't pray, it doesn't mean that God won't accomplish his sovereign purposes. It just means he'll raise up somebody else who will pray. So if I don't pray, God doesn't lose, I do. He just raises up somebody else in my place who will ask him. Because God in his sovereignty, I believe, has purposed not to work except through believing prayer uh, in the new covenant age. And even Old Testament passages, David said... In Chronicles, you have promised to build a house for your name. Therefore, I have found courage to ask you to build a house for your name. The relationship of sovereignty and prayer. Philippians, what a precious, precious portion of Scripture. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehensions, will guard, comprehension will guard, what a word, your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do you get guarded by God's peace? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. You can't tell God thank you for something you don't believe he did. It presupposes sovereignty. 
If you tell him thank you for something he didn't do, that's illegitimate. No. Thank you, God. You are in total control of everything that's happening in my life. You wouldn't let one thing touch me unless it's first filtered through your fingers of love. I'm thanking you for this. I don't understand it. I'm really anxious about it. Therefore, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you for your help. I'm making a request to you, God. What happens? He doesn't change your circumstances many times. He changes you. You get his peace right in the midst of the peril, and you feel guarded, enveloped, secure in your heart and in your mind in Christ. It's just so precious. Concerning sovereignty and responsibility to pray, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be restored from those who are disobedient, uh, rescued, probably, pardon me, rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Pray for me because there's a bunch of terrible people in Judea who are trying to hinder me. Man. Ephesians 6, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. What, what a way to pray. I love that the Apostle Paul who wrote, you know, double-digit books of the New Testament and preached like a man with his hair on fire, asked a little church in Ephesus to pray for him that he would keep preaching the gospel. You never arrive. You never get good at evangelism. So... <laughs> The apostle, the eminent apostle, pray for me that I would just open my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. What's the syllogism? Why do we not make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel? We personally are not praying and asking other people's people to pray for us that we would do so. Prayer in the sovereignty of God. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. It should be one of our uppermost prayers that the Lord would cause the gospel to go forward, churches to be established where people could be discipled in all the truth. Uh, We have to ask the Lord to do this. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Man, what a motive to prayer. One, one other thing I want to touch before we close. So here's a final verse on prayer and God's sovereignty. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You need wisdom? Talk to God in faith. Why? Here's a promise. God is generous. He's a benevolent giver. He loves to bestow good gifts on his children. Trust him. Believe him. How do you do that? Prayer, asking, help me. All right, the last thing I want to touch, we've, we've hit a couple verses on this, is the advance of God's kingdom. Uh, When Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, the question is, which direction does the four point? Which way is the arrow going? Is it for all the nations to come in? Like, 
Revelation 5, 9, a, a church of multi-ethne peoples to come. And Ephesians 2, Christ breaks down the barrier of all the dividing walls. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. Is that the direction of the arrow? Or is it my house should be called a house of prayer like we do every Sunday for all the nations, all the unreached peoples of the world that we as a little house of faith and embassy of Christ's kingdom on earth would be a lighthouse that prays for more lighthouses to be established? Well, I think the answer is both. <laughs> By prayer, God sanctifies his people, sends gospel laborers into the world, and causes the word of God to spread and triumph over Satan and unbelief. So many passages on this. Pray for us. Why? So that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. What a way for a church to pray. That's the Thessalonian church. <clears throat> um, I meant to put this verse in a previous section, so I'll, I'll skip it. Look at this. Look at the way Paul prays for the Colossians. It's a great prayer to memorize and, and pray for your fellow church members. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What kind of gospel advance is Paul praying for the Colossians? Spiritual maturation. These people are already in Christ, but he's praying that they would increase in the knowledge of God. How does that happen? On the back of prayer, praying people. And yeah, last verse. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, may the Lord cause you, that's a prayer, to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. How do you fit, do you, how do you fit into this sentence? Are you increasing and overflowing in love for the humans God saved in this church. Pray for it. Ask God to cause it. That's how the mighty purposes of God advance. Is your heart blameless and holy? If not, ask him to do it. <laughs> ask him to establish it. And to do it not just before the eyes of men, but before his own face until Jesus comes. Well, rapid fire, a lot of verses on the combination of meditation and prayer. Um, let me give one practical application for today. If you're not memorizing some passage of scripture, pick one today. They're all good. There's no bad options. Just pick one and start the journey and make it part of your daily rhythm of trying to lock in versus verbatim, whatever translation you're using, because something happens. When it gets into you, it just goes with you. And it starts to bubble up 
all the time uh, in moments. So my, my family's working on Psalm 130, slowly but surely, and I'm trying to tackle another little passage myself. Uh, you guys heard Brian say he's trying to memorize Romans 8 uh, over the course of this sabbatical. So if, if I asked you, what passage of Scripture are you currently memorizing? Uh, I pray that you would have one on the tip of your tongue, and if not, pick one today and start the process because it will lead to prayer-filled meditation. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray Psalm 119, verse 133, over us all. Even if we've been negligent for a long time and feel like we'll never actually find a pattern, a rhythm, I still pray it, Lord, because you can do it. I pray, Lord, that you would establish our footsteps in your word and not let any iniquity have dominion over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.